0: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We will soon have bonus episodes about introducing movies to kids and the new Seth Rogen comedy, American Pickle. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present
1: believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living
2: being.
3: We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
0: Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Tasha Robinson. With American movie theaters still largely closed, we're continuing to focus on Quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. For our next two episodes, we'll be discussing...
3: Excuse me. Excuse me very much here. I have the conch. Um, huh? I have the conch. By the rules of this podcast, it's my turn to speak.
0: First of all, what are you talking about? And second of all, why are you speaking like a British schoolboy? Whoever holds the conch is allowed to speak. All others must listen. Uh, Tasha, I'm looking at you now in the Zoom app, and I don't see... Wait, there it is. You're holding a large shell and and blowing into it. I don't think we've previously had a rule about conch holding and speaking, but if you want to go with it, why don't you tell us about our next pairing? All right, then.
3: While you do have to listen to me speak, you don't have to listen to me speak in this accent. So there. Director Peter Brook had enjoyed tremendous success on the stage and behind the camera when he decided to adopt William Golding's 1954 bestseller The Lord of the Flies as his third feature film. Working on remote locations in Puerto Rico, Brook and his crew shepherded a group of young actors through the story of a group of British schoolboys who form a makeshift government after their plane crashes on an uninhabited island. We were reminded of Lord of the Flies while watching Boys' State, Amanda McBain's and Jesse Moss's new documentary, and another depiction of what civilization looks like when imitated by young people. Every year, the American Legion hosts Boys' State and Girls' State events in which high school residents of each state learn about how the government works by forming their own parties and participating in a mock election. Boys' State follows a handful of participants over the course of the 2018 Boys' State
0: in Austin, Texas. This week we'll talk about a fictional juvenile government by discussing Lord of the Flies. Then next week, we'll examine a non-fictional attempt to build a functional, if fictional, democracy by way of boys' state. We'll be right back after the break.
2: You shut up, you fat slug. I got the conch. Owl Jack. Let him oh. speak. He's got conch. And you
0: shut up. Who are you anyway, just sitting there telling people what to do? You can't hunt. You can't sing. I'm chief. I was chosen. Why should choosing? Make any difference? Telling people what to do. Piggy's got the conch. That's right. Favor piggies you always do. Jack! 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 The rules, you're breaking the rules. Who cares? Because the rules are the only thing we got. Bollocks to the rules. We're strong. We
1: hunt. As a beast we'll hunt it down and beat and beat.
0: Yeah! William Golding's Lord of the Flies was never going to be an easy novel to adapt. Drawing on his experiences as a schoolteacher, Golding imagined an island populated by a group of English schoolboys, survivors of a plane that's crashed in the process of whisking them to safety in the midst of a mounting global conflict. While they initially get along, imitating the order and civility they've come to consider quintessentially English traits, it doesn't take long for factionalism and cruelty to set in. While a bookish kid known only as Piggy and the good-hearted Ralph try to stick to the rules, they prove no match for Jack. A choir boy with a lust for power and a talent for violence who unites the other boys with a promise to protect them against enemies that exist largely in their imagination. Their island becomes a version of the world's chaos, writ small but stained with blood. To soften its plot would mean losing the novel's point. To bring in charismatic child actors and beautiful technicolor photography might dull the grimness. To avoid this, director Peter Brook took an approach that chipped away at the divide between art and reality. Then he just kept chipping. He recruited a cast of inexperienced child actors to play the schoolboys, then worked with them in the Caribbean with no signs of civilization in sight. Working with a modest budget, he shot in sequence and captured the natural disintegration of the cast's costumes and their visibly mounting fatigue. To work as cameraman and editor, he recruited Gerald Field from the world of American documentary films, where lightweight cameras and a middle-of-the-action approach to his direct cinema were revolutionizing nonfiction filmmaking. And to adapt the film, he opted, in some respects, not to adapt, not only staying close to the original plot, but eschewing a screenplay. Instead, he read from the book to the boys each day, then films the scenes he read to them. The result is a film of uncommon immediacy. The cast has an unassuming presence that more experienced actors would have had a hard time faking, and the unadorned beaches and verdant hills make a stark backdrop against which they playact the dissolution of society. If anything, Brooke's approach only makes the novel darker. The fledgling democracy seems destined to fall apart the moment Jack, played by Tom Chapin, arrives surrounded by his identically clad fellow choristers. They're a tribe even before proper tribalism sets in. On the page, it's easy to think of Golden's characters as literary constructs, playing out assigned roles in an allegorical story filled with references to fascism and class divisions. On the screen, they're unmistakably children— Vulnerable but also vicious and on a crash course to lose their innocence before they fully understand what they're doing, what it means to kill, or how easily what they've built can go up in flames. But we do, which makes it all the more disturbing. Away from a self-destructing civilization, they find a way to fast-forward to the same apocalyptic end, apparently engulfing the globe around them. Here's Brooke talking to a journalist in 1964 as quoted in Jeffrey McNabb's excellent essay for the Criterion Collection edition of the film. Now is a good point in the world's madness to point up how easily people slip back. Here is a pure case. Children, and children from the best families, some of them in choir school. Golding puts them down in the Garden of Eden. From nowhere comes disagreements and disputes. They do not realize the trouble is within themselves. Finally, they destroy paradise. End quote. Brooke was speaking at a near-remove from the Cuban Missile Crisis, the closest we came to global destruction. But the years since, and the world around us right now, has only confirmed the fragility of the institutions and values we grew up thinking as indestructible. Whether that destruction is inevitable or remains an open question, but Brooke and Golding offer little comfort in the answer they provide.
2: We killed a pig. We're up
0: on it. We got circle let the fire out. Fire, we
1: can light it up again.
0: There was lots of blood. You should have seen it. There was a plane. (laughs) There was a plane! They might have seen us. We might have gone home. So we often start with a question about what your history is with the film. I want to broaden it just a little because I think we all have read or probably read Lord of the Flies at some point or seen another film version or kind of just dealt with as a cultural reference point. So, Scott, I know you've seen this film and and written about Mm -hmm. it, so I'll start with you. What is your history with uh, Lord of the Flies?
1: I read the book in probably high school, and uh, then, of course, I saw the film uh, The Criterion, edition for the dissolve. And I think you're right about the book. I mean, I think it's one of those books like Animal Farm that you read to understand allegory as a concept. <laughs> and that's how I remember it. I just remember it. Oh, okay, this is, you know, that's how you know Lord of the Flies. This is a, this is an allegory for how uh Uh, civilization works and how democracies can fail and all of those things. And it's something that comes up again in in the culture, The Simpsons, you know, so you know it's uh, (laughs) relevant if it comes up there. And then I saw the Criterion edition for The Dissolve and quite liked it. I mean, the film is rough clay. You know, the manner in which Brooke chose to shoot the film introduces flaws that I, I think are unavoidable, you know, particularly with regard to the dubbing and the performances, which are variable. I mean, these are their children, and here you're. you're... Hearing your keynote uh, probably doesn't sound like the best conditions to uh, for children to be working under. I feel like, I don't know if they would have gotten away with uh, stranding a bunch of small children on an island and watching them uh, deteriorate. That's probably not, not good practice. But it's so viscerally powerful. The look of the film, the approach is so powerful. And I think just in the broad strokes, and I think this film is kind of done in broad strokes, it plays. You know, you can see how aggression and fear can take over and overcome rational thought and overcome the notion of democracy, the experiment of democracy, which is something that everybody needs to be on board uh, with in order to, for democracies to succeed, which is something I think we're learning in this country right now. So yeah, I, I'm uh, I, I'm a fan of the film, but I'm certainly too distant from the book to really remember the relationship between book and film.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm curious if any of us have read the book within the last, let's say, twenty years.
0: Oh, I don't. I don't think so. I think I read it in junior high, and I, I really resisted it because. And I realize now it's because not it really disturbed me. I, I, yeah. read, I read it again a few years later and liked it a lot, a lot better. But I think as a seventh grader, I was like, oh, "This is bad. Piggy yeah. dies." <laughs> <You know? laughs> Sad.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seventh grade is maybe a little young. I, I It was a ninth grade read for me. It, it, it's just it seems like a quintessential freshman English kind of book because of what Scott was saying about it being, you know, functioning as such a clear example of, of allegory. But I had not seen this film before. I'd never seen any filmed version of it. I guess there's a 1990 film as well that my my, my fiance watched in school. I guess is supplementary material, mm. but I missed that one. And of course, I was very familiar with the Simpsons episode. Although uh, to call that a, an adaptation is a, a stretch. But uh, yeah, I, I went watching this one for the first time. I I wish I had. Done a little preliminary research and known going in about how it was filmed and and the sort of the uh, the approach to realism. I, g- I guess you know because it, it's jarring at first and the in hindsight I really like the way it opens with just a bunch of of still photos kind of setting the place. But again, it's it's a little jarring in the moment and it took probably like the first act for me to like get on this film's wavelength and kind of tune into the child performances, which I ended up really liking despite their sort of crudeness, because it felt more like children, you know, like some of the kids were about to talk about in Boys State, notwithstanding, you know, (laughs) other kids are, you know, generally not that eloquent. And, you know, their interactions can be a little stilted sometimes. So, in that respect it like seeing that translate to the performances here did as Keith kind of got at in his keynote just bring through the stark grimness of this being children experiencing this as opposed to words on a page. And by the final act of this film it had like like the last twenty minutes of this are hard. Like I, I was like not quite on the edge of my seat, but I was like feeling viscerally uncomfortable with how it was playing out, even though I I didn't have the strongest memories of the exact progression of events. But like I knew where this was headed. And even with that knowledge, it was very viscerally uncomfortable. Tasha, how about you?
3: I honestly couldn't tell you how early I read this book. It was it was pretty early. Uh, maybe fifth grade. I, I think I've talked on this podcast before about how, uh, as a kid, I was always trying to read way ahead of my age level mm. out of some sort of misguided belief that uh, it made me more grown up, which like led to me reading a lot of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky in ninth grade, because I, I honestly <laughs> believe that was what adults read. Like I, I lived in this very deluded world where a- adults just sat around with their Dostoyevsky all the time, and I... <laughs> Wanted to feel like it was part of that, so I th- I think I might have read Ludoflies as early as fifth grade. And I'll tell you, when you're that young and you're reading the book, it does not feel like fiction. It feels like biography. You know, It feels like uh, an observation of what you're experiencing all around you, because kids really do behave very differently when adults are watching than when they don't. And they are very tribal, and they can be very cruel. And when you're reading this book specifically as a fat kid who always feels a little on the outside of everything, it feels very pointed and very much aimed at you. And if I have a quibble with the film, it's that it feels so artificial and removed from a lot of the horror that the book brings across. There's a smoothness and inevitability to the book, to the the degree to which everything degrades, uh, how rapidly and how thoroughly, that doesn't feel as present to me in the movie until the third act and the third act really brings the horror the third act really brings that situation particularly for ralph of uh, like understanding for the first time what it's like to be in a disintegrating out group and to understand for the first time that there is no protection and that there is no out for what he's experiencing But at the same time, it it makes the first two acts look even more slow and draggy. And I honestly feel like a lot of the problems that I have with this film could have been fixed in editing, just in terms of the long, slow, very unnatural feeling gaps Mm. between people talking when they're in groups versus when they're charging around when they feel a lot more natural. They feel like they're actually doing the behavior as opposed to imitating a behavior they've either seen or that they've been told to emulate. And I think it's a fascinating document of something that sort of really happened in terms of getting all these kids together and getting them to emulate the story as it was being told to them. But this does sometimes feel to me like one of those films where the behind the scenes stories might end up being a lot more interesting than the actual document of the film itself. The document of the film is sort of necessary Mm -hmm. to give it all shape, but I feel like I could read just all day about what it was like to be on that island with those boys trying to create this than like actually watching the film again at this point.
2: Yeah, I think to kind of reiterate what I was saying about wishing I had known going into this more about how it was made, like to speak to what you're saying about these long pauses between dialogue, you know, like I I definitely noticed that too, and had sort of a not so great reaction to just the, the stiltedness of it. But as I understand it, like, because of the way this was filmed, because they were on beaches, outdoors, like everything had to be redubbed. Scott, you you mentioned the dubbing earlier, like they had to like go into the forest and and record the re-record all the dialogue at at the end of the day and dub it in. You know, I'm no sound expert, but I'm guessing that that definitely complicated any sort of like over talking you know or like people talking at the same time like it was necessary to be silted in order to dub it that way you know not to get into too many extra textuals here but you know I I do think that the final product is so clear that the situation in which it was filmed like had an effect on it that I think it it's a little necessary maybe to have that lens to view the film through
3: There is also a degree to which uh, some of the most disturbing and fascinating and different things that happen in the novel are very internal. Like what Simon is going Mm -hmm. through with the Lord of the flies itself, which uh, the movie captures a a very disturbing horror movie interaction kind of between him and the pig's head and the flies, but it can't get at the depth of what's going on in his head during that sequence. And there are places where I I just feel like this might've been a, bit of a an internal novel to try to translate to the screen with such young uh, young boys.
2: Yeah, I had to remind myself of the character of Simon and like kind of what he represented and what his experience in the book was, because in the film, he's just sort of this quiet wide-eyed figure around the edges there is no real sense of his internal life as, as you say so that moment when he confronts the sow's head and then later the beast you know hanging in the trees it's effective from like a like you say a horror standpoint but in terms of sort of the allegorical roles these characters are playing i think that's especially lost in the character of simon
1: yeah i mean i think that my perspective on the film is that it is that it's an experience Experimental film or semi-experimental semi-exper- film that is almost a venture that taken on with the acceptance that certain elements of it will not function as well as a conventional f- telling of the story might. That some of the psychology is going to be flattened by. Choosing to film it this way, so the acting is going to be more variable. The dialogue is not going to be recorded the way dialogue is normally recorded. So you give those things away, and then when you get in return, it's something kind of singular. I mean, I don't. I think about movies from this, you know, nineteen sixty-three. How many movies were being made that are quite like this? You know, that kind of blur documentary and fiction. As effectively, um, that are this uh, viscerally powerful, that are this conceptually ambitious, and there's very few. I mean, so it kind of stands out to me almost as this um, a breakthrough singular kind act of creation, right? Exactly. <laughs> it, 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 it does feel singular. It feels like a, a mm-hmm. real aesthetic leap. And though it's raw and unrefined in certain respects, it also does some things that you would not have seen at that time or, or even now. I mean, it's it's pretty raw and interestingly directed
0: I like the whole thing but I'm kind of with Tasha that, that the last third is when it really is really at its most powerful and in part because some of the things you're talking about Scott where it is uh, so documentary like I mean when they, when they light fires I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that there were safety procedures in place, <laughs> but it, that's real fire rampaging across this set, or you know, not even set across this this uh, location with uh, all these child actors, and and you can't really fake that, and it's it's really quite effective and disturbing.
3: Yeah, I feel the same way to some degree about all these uh, n- like increasingly near naked little boys clambering yeah. around on these like rough rocks next to this like thrashing sea. There was just there's sort of this perpetual. Am I watching child endangerment right now? Yeah. Like if it happened, if it happened right now, I'd be like, oh, you know, it's all it's all fine. It was all assembled in post. I'm not going to say that it took me out of the film or that it it spoils the degree to which I was engaged with the film, but it it was sort of on my mind at various
0: points i haven't watched it it's on youtube there's a documentary where brooke reunited the cast in 1996 um, oh my god called time flies um oh I, I, I think you know I, I think i'll watch it after this uh it, it sounds like a pretty fascinating uh, oh god i took it took, you know, it took me a minute but
2: i just got time flies yeah. yeah yeah that's that's rough that's rougher than a lot of the things that happen in the film
0: uh yeah oh, that's, but, a, that's uh, a good one like a few other little bits of the trivia is is that uh, um, Ralph's voice apparently dropped right, three yeah. octaves, and they had to like <laughs> sort of electronically alter it. And then the kid who played Jack, Tom Chapin, had somehow lost his English accent, and his voice is entirely redubbed, which is interesting because I think that's one of the best performances in the film i did not know watching it though that it was cobbled together with with somebody else's uh someone else doing the dialogue entirely
3: uh was
2: it shot in chronological order as far
3: as it know? was yes. it
0: was yeah and it was like you can really they... see the
2: tans developing and I, I, I think yeah. jack and in, in particular like by the end of like whoa he got real dark well i mean with jack i feel i think some of that's paint uh and well, not
3: paint like paint or dirt within... <laughs> Uh, yeah, paint. Well, I, I mean, they all get visibly grubbier over yeah. time. And <laughs> if they just shot it with them all out there, that uh, is uh, it's it's diegetic dirt. You know, they were all <laughs> they were all living. It's just naturalistic dirt. It does seem I mean, obviously, to some degree, the movie ramps up in intensity because it's building towards a climax because uh, the kids behavior is getting wilder because they've forgotten civilization. They've forgotten rules and they are they're living by their own rules. But to some degree, it does feel like they get more into their roles and what they're doing, how they're playing becomes more natural to them over time. Yeah. And some part of me does wonder, like, what would have happened if they'd gone back and refilmed the first act after they'd concluded with the third act when everybody was just a different person at that point? I mean, that's that's something more than anything I remember Uh, When I interviewed Tarsum about perennial, talk too much about it on the podcast movie, uh, The Fall, he started off when he met the little girl that's at the center of that movie. I think she was she wanted he wanted her to be four. And I think she was five. And he was like, I knew we had about a month with her before she was a completely different person, you know, more sophisticated, more used to being on a set, more used to acting. And it's the same thing here, like, as they th- kind of visibly get more comfortable with their roles and their characters in the camera, I, I can't help but wonder what would happen if they'd gone back and-, and caught some of that earlier stuff when they felt more in their characters. Of course, they would have had to, like,
2: bathe yeah. them and then all and detan them. But I, I mean, I think to an extent it kind of works because, like, w- one thing that's I don't think ever really commented a- or upon or explained is that, like these boys don't know each other like they're you know they're it's not like they're all schoolmates it's like they've been assembled from a bunch of different schools like obviously the choir uh jack's choir boys all know each other and, and dress alike but you know it seems like they've for the most part come from different places and so especially like in that first interaction between piggy and ralph which is again very stilted and odd but I think it works in the context of two young boys who don't yet have the social skills necessary to sort of strike up a a relationship in this very terrifying context, you know, and so they they are a little weird, you know. I, I think I think anyone would be weird in that situation, you know? And then naturally they get not necessarily more comfortable with each other, but more acclimated to each other the more time that they spend on the island and their uh, interactions kind of follow suit. So I I can't say that was intentional, but I think it's a reading you can apply to the way the performances evolve.
1: Yeah, and I think that the physical action is something that they would have to be more comfortable with too. So when they're all sort of gathered around and they're having these exchanges of dialogue, that's not going to be a setting that they're going to thrive in as much as, you know, the action towards the end of uh, the movie where it's just being broken down and everything becomes much more physical. And I think when you're a, a boy a bunch, around a bunch of other boys running around an island, you know, sometimes in face paint and stuff, I mean, I think that you can kind of get in that spirit, you know, a lot more naturally. Mm-hmm. And I think from a filmmaker's perspective, you know, you're not having to worry about some of the most troublesome aspects of the shoot. You can actually just kind of film the action, which is why I think that last third is as powerful as it is.
2: The face paint really does feel like a bit of a turning point in the film and in the performances. And it's I hadn't thought about it until you said it, but I wonder if there is something about actually putting this makeup on that sort of allowed the boys to get to a new level with their performances.
3: I mean, you could say the same thing about the costuming. The Mm -hmm. difference between wearing those elaborate choir robes at the beginning Mm -hmm. and running around in grasses and hides by the end of the movie. I've got to imagine that that uh, had a strong psychological effect, that I want to make assumptions like I think it's—I think it was probably freeing, or I think it took them out of civilization. Uh, but it might have also made them shyer. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of uh, small child running around naked in this film. It's true.
0: They don't seem that shy to me, though. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody seems all that shy uh, in the last part of this movie.
3: That is very true. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to make assumptions based on uh, what you see on screen, because that's always a mistake. But uh, I think however you put it, the costuming choices, which I, I think it's really great kind of how much attention was paid to you know they don't go from clothing to not let's not wear clothing you can see in every scene like more tears appearing more Mm -hmm. cloth disappearing things getting progressively dirtier and and grubbier and more skin appearing as their clothes just wear away with uh with effort and time and exposure Mm -hmm.
0: So she's talking about the setting, which, you know, this was filmed in Puerto Rico. It's basically an island, sort of anywhere island, but it is shot, the whole film, of course, is shot in, in sort of this, this grainy black and white, which I think kind of removes any sort of, uh, uh it, no one's going to mistake it for a paradise uh, as presented mm-hmm. in, in this, in this film. What, what do you think about the way it uses the setting?
3: I mean, just some of the early shots of an immense amount of fruit hanging from the trees does kind of give it all an an Edenic quality. Mm. You know, it's almost like there's a declaration early on. This is not going to be a story about struggling to survive. This is not going to be a story about we can't get enough food. We're exposed to the elements like they do sort of fundamentally have what they need to survive. And then, of course, like a little coterie becomes obsessed with killing things for meat. And, you know, there's, there's a whole ethical debate to be had in there about, and I say this, I'm not in any way a vegetarian, but I have to imagine that to some degree, there's a message in here about, here's what you need to survive. Now you're insisting on taking more from the environment in the most brutal way possible, and in a way that's probably not sustainable. You know, we we never see like a herd of pigs on this island. Mm. We see a couple of individual pigs wandering around. And I, I keep thinking to myself, like, what if there are five pigs total on that <laughs> island? You know, I I like how how long are they going to be able to, to go on with this? But there is that sort of sense of the environment defines so much of what they what they do and what they can do. You know, there's a comfortable place on the beach for them to meet like a big sort of flat circular area so that becomes defined as a meeting place and a camp there are these jagged rocks and that kind of becomes defined as like the the place where the fierce children live there's this high up uh, inaccessible place and that becomes defined as the inaccessible place like i think there's just some really really good and clever use of the environment here But to some degree, it might not ever get better than the point where they're standing on on the highest spot they can reach and just like looking down and seeing the desolation of just the ocean stretching out in all the directions they look. Just a a clear understanding that they're completely isolated and that nobody is immediately coming for them.
2: It also has to be a setting that can conceivably... Be home to a beast, a mythical beast, you know that it, <laughs> that uh, becomes a again again a symbol, but also a a method for for Jack to assume power. And you know, early in the film, Jack sort of leads the expedition group around the island. I mean, it's a it's a small enough island that they can sort of you know get the the whole scope of it in in the course of a, a day or whatever. But it's also a island that is you know varied enough as Tasha, you were kind of laying out that it can have these sort of different tiers of danger to it, you know, and, and it's a good setting for that because, you know, you there, there is this sort of idyllic part of it, but then there is this really imposing side of it, too. Like the the jungle is scary and the big rocky crags are, are scary, especially when you have someone telling you that they are home to a, a scary beast that you can't see, you know? So the the setting has to reflect that. I'm suddenly back in Lost. All yeah. All of a sudden. <laughs> I I definitely thought of Lost. Uh, Ridiculous
3: monsters. This, yeah.
2: Plot.
0: Yeah. Well, what? I think I think Lost thought of this too. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. For sure. For certain.
1: I think it's important that the film establish and it does establish that this is a sustainable place for them to live. I I guess that's where I might part a little bit with with Tasha in that. I don't think it's there's any question whether there's you know five pigs or five hundred on the island. I don't think there's any question that they could survive on this island and live as say um, Ralph might envision it as is, is sustaining themselves, uh, having a signal fire and holding out until help arrives. Like that has to be possible, I think, in order for the whole. Allegory to work, right? Um, and well, then, sure. I mean,
3: it it is an Eden allegory, and it it doesn't work if they've got exactly one one year of fruit and then they all die. I mean they they have to bring in they have to bring the snake into the garden themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it, it's it's fascinating to me. Just you know, I, mean, I guess this isn't setting related. I'm just kind of going off of that. But just uh, I'm always I'm fascinated by stories or, or by circumstances in which. You know the sort of guardrails of civilization are lowered or taken away, and in, in, in how humans respond to that, and also about whether that response has anything to do with boyhood or whether it's or manhood or human nature in general. Uh, and it, I, we'll certainly get into this when we talk about boy state, but masculinity is such an important part of this story, and the manner in which these boys make appeals to each other, in the way in which things go awry, is a very boy or man-like way for things to go awry, which is through, you know, aggression and intimidation and fear. I don't know, I'm rambling, but you you know know what I'm saying. I think that's kind of like at the core of the story, and I think it's something that the film is able to get across, you know, through the action, you know, not through the dialogue as much, but just through the way everything kind of unfolds and, and how it turns into this, you know, nightmare by the end.
3: Yeah, I find myself asking a lot of questions. Like, I think when I read it when I was young, looking at the difference between the boys and girls around me, I just accepted without question that boys are less civilized than girls. This is how boys behave when they're on their own. This would be how boys behave when they're on their own. Looking around at the world today and with more experience, I questioned the degree to which, like, I don't think a an all-girl Lord of the Flies would fall out in exactly the same way. I think there might be considerably less uh, focus on, on killing things. But the in-group out-group uh, mentality would absolutely mm-hmm. still be there. The the <laughs> ego and the tribalism, the jealousy, the shutting people out based on uh, appearance and like elevating certain people, like all of that would still be there in an all-girl Lord of the Flies. So, I mean, I'm I'm curious what you see in here as uh, as specifically and solely masculine.
2: We have an all-girl Lord of the Flies. It's called Mean Girls. We covered it on this podcast. <laughs> oh, we did, it, didn't we? And you notice that there's a lot. <laughs> Of uh, tribalism <laughs> and in-group, yeah. out-group stuff going on there. Slightly less bloodlust, though.
1: What well, well, violence is? Would violence be a, a difference, or a certain, a certain oh, type? Oh, you of and like... your
2: beloved violence. <laughs>
3: I mean, uh, my instinct says that it would, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's very hard to tell since uh, we, you know, we have, we kind of have the example of history and countless all male organizations and looking at how they've behaved. We have far less recorded history because it doesn't get recorded. You know, when you have all female groups uh, leading a society, it's less common. Baby witches. (laughs)
1: <laughs> this is like... It's
3: less recorded when it happens, so like it's it's hard to tell.
1: You, you clearly did not see the documentary Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> Because they, they have the island with the... With all yeah, the, no, I got the, it. It. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It, it. It sort of took me a second to get it. Okay. Well, my, my understanding... <laughs> my like, understanding what?
1: What you <laughs> I, well,
3: I was actually questioning for a woman <laughs> for a moment. It's not an uncommon uh, like like two-word phrase. I, I was wondering for a second if there was also a documentary named Wonder Woman. Mostly what I learned from the documentary Wonder Woman that you are speaking of uh, mm-hmm. is that on an all-female island, there would be a lot more sex. <laughs> than we see here, certainly.
0: What I learned is, is is if Zack Snyder shoots on that island, it's going to be a lot more low angles than, uh, yeah. <laughs> than otherwise. Yeah.
3: A lot more upskirts. I mean, here we don't have a lot of upskirts because uh, most people aren't wearing skirts, but that's by true. the time the boys are just wearing uh, little pieces of cloth and or uh, sticks around their hips, there are actually are an awful lot of up angles.
0: <laughs> so this is a very um, freshman English question, but I'm going to ask anyway. So Lord of the Flies uh, is another name for Beelzebub, which is a biblical reference. That's kind of become synonymous with satan uh where is the devil in this story
3: i mean piggy pretty much lays it out you know it was us it was us yeah, all along yeah everything bad that happens comes directly out of uh, the boys and and the mistakes they make and it's mostly out of jealousy and uh, power lust and and greed and desire to destroy things
0: you know i think there is sort of a general condemnation of of human nature and and uh and especially boys in this but but how does the story play out without jack without like sort of this charismatic fascist
1: i think there becomes another jack
0: yeah okay (laughs) possibly a
2: less powerful jack i think ralph could become the jack to if mm. I mean like Ralph won the popular vote <laughs> you know keep in mind like Ralph's like first act is to tell everyone that Piggy is Piggy even yes. after Piggy told him not to tell people you, out right away. yeah mm-hmm. yeah
3: and his, his second act, more or less, is to claim uh, the shell that Peggy found. And the, his third act is more or less to claim power, kind of like based on that shell, like to, to claim leadership, to put himself up for leader. So there, there certainly are, uh, as our f- theoretical freshman English uh, class might say, the roots of sin are there.
2: They're in him as much as they are in Jack. I also, this is maybe the, the place to bring it up, I definitely wanted to bring in the refrain of Kyrie eleison. Kyrie, Kyrie, Kyrie eleison. <laughs> uh, which I was like walking around the house singing much to the consternation of everyone else in my household. Get some more uh, lyrics, kids. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of liturgical music out there and much of it
3: has words that are not those
2: two words. Right, and for for those who were, you know, not raised in the, you know, a Christian faith, you know they translate to lord have mercy is a very common refrain in in many christian religions so i and in I, a,
0: and a 180s new wave song <laughs>
1: uh, yeah i was that's the one i was like that's that's in my head now
2: wait i don't i don't know what song
0: Kyrie by mr mr
1: Oh.
2: I'll, yeah. send, okay. I'll send it to you. All right. Well I think we have our outro music for, for
3: this episode.
1: <laughs>
0: Curious,
1: <laughs> the um, roads that I have come- Uh go ahead.
3: Well I I was I I um, don't down the roads no. that I must travel, Scott. Kiri <laughs> Lazen through the darkness
1: of the night. <laughs> so, you know, we know this stuff. I, I could. I could play that entire. Heavy song. play this song. Yeah. I'm just to well,
2: as for its use in in this movie, well, I, first of all, is that taken from the book? Does anyone know? Did anyone do that that research or have that Ooh, that recall? That's
3: an excellent question. That's a very good I question. Don't
0: know. Yeah. Here, well, why don't you? Put it, drop it in an edit, and then we'll we'll pretend. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll look it up. Uh, uh,
2: Uh. All right, here I'm. I'm gonna look it up. Uh, Lord of Lord, if the flies, Lord of the flies. I think it might be specific to the movie. I'm only seeing it in relation. A quick Google uh, informs me that it was not uh from the book. It is, it seems to be specific to the movie. So, so yeah, I, just to like bring it back to the question about the biblical reference at the, the heart of this film. I don't I don't know if there's like a direct comment being made there, but I think maybe it is a, a little flourish to that effect.
3: I mean, one could pretty easily pretty readily see it as a commentary on the the hypocrisy of religion mm-hmm. here I mean here you have a group of boys who clearly came from a church tradition and are very much part of it and the whole reason for using little boys as mm-hmm. choristers is because before uh, boys voices change they have these very high pure sopranos that were considered uh, like a mark of innocence uh, uh, the The voices themselves were considered symbolic of purity and innocence and <laughs> the, the fact that somebody's voice changed changed that dramatically during the course of this film. <laughs> just strikes me as like hilarious symbolism. But you have uh, this little little group of kids that are sticking to part of their church tradition. Uh, and and calling on god's mercy while they're uh, symbolically speaking uh as far as the the actual lord of the flies goes uh the pig's head covered in flies and sort of what it symbolizes and what it brings to simon's mind like they're serving the devil they're they're doing the devil's work while singing the lord's song it's a pretty heavy piece of symbolism uh it's also just maddeningly repetitive <laughs> 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 Cure, Cure,
2: Cure, Cure, i don't know i think it's a jam <laughs>
1: So oh, yeah. we oh, boy. Wait until we talked you hear about, that Mr. Mr. song.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we talked about Ralph and we talked about uh, Jack. We should talk about Piggy, who's sort of the, the third most important character uh, here, or the third important, third protagonist of a sort of a, a, a three person um, uh, drama in many ways. What is the film's attitude toward him? And does it differ from the book? Cause I, I feel like in the book, he comes off as uh, more obviously brainy than he does mm-hmm. in the film. Yeah. Um, but he still kind of plays the same role.
3: Yeah,
2: I I don't know that I like this kid mm-hmm. in this film. And and part but of his that story is about the how his town got its name. It was captivating. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh man, it's 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 such a drag. He's a well known drag. You turn the sound on him and you say rude things. It's just he's in this film, like I I just don't think you get the sense of him either as the arbiter of civilization who takes care of the little kids like you see him getting left alone with them and and telling them this <laughs> kind of boring story that i can't imagine any small child being really <laughs> engaged with uh, but you know in the book he is meant to be kind of the representation of a man who isn't his his first charms aren't physical you know a man whose first skills are not sport or uh charisma and here he's just kind of a wet blanket you know he's a little whiny and he doesn't do much useful and i think just more more to the point than anything else we just see how helpless he is all the time you know he he can't he can't fight back he can't defend himself well he can't see without his spectacles he just feels like a wet blanket and i i don't know that i like the degree to which the film kind of holds him in contempt as opposed to holding out the idea that uh, these children are holding this entire very significant set of symbols in, uh, in contempt.
2: Yeah. I remembered him being a a much more noble figure than he comes across here, you know, like not a, not necessarily a heroic figure, but a noble one, you know, and I feel like the his speech toward the end is like a nod to that. But the characterization of Piggy up to that point is just doesn't really sell it. So it almost comes off like more of a tantrum, you know, than a truth telling. Yeah, it feels very effective in the moment, but it does feel like another
3: one of those places where the film doesn't fully fall together and, and operate on all cylinders a- until the third act. It's a good third act.
1: <laughs> yeah, it Strong is a good third, third, third act. act. Yep. We're
0: well, we going to talk about the third act and the, the first and the second, I you know, later on in next week's episode when we compare it to Boy State. Until then, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back with Feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. But first off, we have to address a controversy that's been brewing ever (laughs) since our episodes on First Cow and Meek's Cutoff. Films set in the state, we've been informed is pronounced Oregon, not Oregon. Uh, From the heart of the Midwest, we apologize to our (laughs) listeners everywhere, but especially the Oregonians out there. Please do not refer to our state as Illinois. We appreciate it in advance. Thank you. Um, So we received some other feedback from our First Cow Mixed Cutoff pairing. Genevieve, you missed those episodes, but would you mind reading a letter anyway?
2: Sure. No problem. Uh, Caitlin writes, I was struck by First Cow's messaging in a broader sense than the podcast seemed to cover. Rather than focusing on the strong friendship between two settlers and some sort of fable about a cow and what greed can lead to when you take from your neighbor, the film seems alternatively about the complex nature of colonialism. There is rarely a sequence in the film that doesn't showcase a shot of indigenous culture to balance out a shot of our leads and or colonists. Natives act as witnesses to the strange capitalist culture. Fixated foremost on ownership and wealth, settlers consider the first cow to be immediate property instead of an opportunity that might benefit all, including chief factor, by sharing resources amongst themselves freely. We witness and admire Cookie's ingenuity and ability to create something magical out of nothing, but it is his and King Lu's entitlement to simply take what they need for their own advancement that mirrors the overall psychology of Western settlers. In the same way America can bemoan its history of violence and greed, we champion our inventiveness in the face of scarcity. Factor may have been willing to trade first milk in return for baked goods in his household, or a percentage of sales, we'll never know. And even though the cow, acting as a Mother Earth female figure, seems on friendly terms with Cookie, he takes all and not some of her offering, leaving her dry of milk." Kelly Reichert goes out of her way to frame the lives of indigenous folk in nearly every scene as a witness, reference, or reaction. Factor's wife and her friend at tea or factors saying that the hunted beaver is endless and will never run out. When the fur trappers say there is more than one woman in town, they are referring to indigenous women. The first person we see laboring under the weight of milk from the first cow is a native youth. Even at the end, when King Lu acquires safe passage down the river, his journey is paralleled by a native woman walking in the same direction on land. This acts as a reminder that whatever persecution or struggle Cookie and King Lou think they face, it pales in comparison to the loss that already exists with the introduction of frontier life to this old or new land. Lastly, the present day sequence of a modern figure walking on and over the bones of her predecessors, but immediately following the long shot of a steamship delivering goods, presumably for sale in a similar manner of transport to the delivery of the first cow, seems significant and symbolic, to say the least. It's good stuff.
1: Yeah. That is good stuff. Though I would say this line about the present day sequence of a modern figure walking on and over the bones of her predecessors. I don't feel like it necessarily strikes that attitude just so much as like more like just making the point that the past informs the present. I don't feel like we have an attitude toward Aliyah Shawkat, who is the person in that shot. I don't feel like we have an attitude of this person, trampling over or disrespecting or something this these these remains i just it's just the discovery of those remains makes it clear that something foundational to this place has occurred and we're going we're about to find out what that is
3: I mean, I don't see Caitlin saying that Elias Shawcat's disrespecting anybody. I think she's just saying that the framing of that scene around the delivery of goods is just further evidence of mm. the movie's engagement with capitalism, which I think is a really good observation here overall. I do agree. That the fact that King Lu and I mean, King, we're we're back to we brought it on ourselves. The devil is in ourselves. King Lu and Cookie's greed in, in taking all of the cow's milk is their downfall. You know, in theory, they could have gone on as long as necessary if they'd been willing to settle for less, steal less, feel entitled to less. But they want the money. King Lu in particular wants the money because he associates it so much with ambition and growth. I really kind of wanted, like this was on our list, we always have a list of more connections than we actually get to in the story. And one of the ones that I had up there that we didn't really fully get to was just how both this film and and Meeks cut off specifically frame native observation and uh, sort of native wisdom as going far beyond like what the white settlers understand or uh, are
1: interested in understanding. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. That too. I was going to say uh, able to perceive in their environment, but you're also uh, extremely right there. And I think it is a, a very important part of this story. And particularly in that scene with the uh, chief factor talking about how, oh the, the beaver enlist, they'll always be more. That's what more means. Yeah, there's uh, one reason I'm not sure I, I fully wanted to get into it was I have a little bit of a discomfort about the degree to which both of these films kind of uh, are doing the noble savage thing, uh, you know, in placing the native characters uh, as this like sort of font of, of quiet, endless wisdom that they offer and that often is not taken. Um, but they're also like lifesavers uh, for the, the white characters. They're just sort of like gently around until they're needed. Or they're non gently around until they're taken captive. So that's though, though it certainly not, does, it it's, yeah. It does, it does again speak to the nature of capitalism. It does again speak to the nature of, uh, like greed and, and rapaciousness and colonialism. So I, I, I think that this letter is still like fully accurate in that. Um, but it was sort of an uncomfortable thing to broach.
1: No, it's a good, it's a, it's a good letter. I don't, I don't, I picked that little knit there. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there that we did not talk about or that we missed. Though I will say, um, I do think the character of the Indian in Meek's cutoff is a complex, you know, an ambiguous character and not, not uh, I think there's there's a, a little bit more to dig into with that character than indigenous characters in First Cow who are much more in the background or much less a part of the story but are present in a, in a significant way as as uh, Caitlin here describes
0: That's actually a really good segue to our next letter, which is about a particular aspect of Meek's cutoff that proved divisive amongst our hosts. Scott, can you share that one? Yes.
1: So Jesse from Seattle writes, uh, while I sympathize with Tasha's desire to know what the captive indigenous man in Meek's cutoff was saying, I found Kelly Reichert's choice to leave his lines unsubtitled quite affecting. More than just putting me, quote-unquote, in the shoes of the party as they struggled to guess at this man's meaning and motive, it forced me to contend with whether I would have treated him any better than the characters do. As a white man who identifies as a progressive, or at the very least, quote-unquote, not racist, a fraught proposition to be sure, seeing the indigenous man's prayers would have made it all too easy for me to dismiss the party's actions as products of their time. But am I really all that enlightened and progressive?" especially in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, these are questions I ask myself more and more. Everyone would like to believe that they would have been against the institution of slavery or shocked at the slaughter of native people as the frontier closed, but chances are most of us would have gone along with it. There was nothing uniquely evil about the people of that time. Othering is all it takes for racist sentiments and actions to gain a foothold. And Reichert's choice to leave the indigenous speech ambiguous leads me to think about times when I myself have failed to see the humanity of those who are not like me, especially when my interests, or more likely my privilege, feels threatened.
3: I mean, uh, I think it's a really noble sentiment, and uh, the problem is to some degree that it's not a sentiment that enough people have. You know, this is a level of self-awareness and self-examination that uh, a lot of the cultural wars going on right now are about trying to instill this kind of thing in more people, you know, to make more people have empathy for other people around them, to make people find ways to see past the, the barrier of othering. And to me, making none of this man's words comprehensible to the audience it just ends up being more othering Uh, to me, at least if we knew what he was saying, if we knew what was going through his head, it would not only sort of explain his place in this film, uh, but give us more of a hook into why what the white settlers are doing is so wrong. He comes across as very removed and distant and alien, and to some degree, because he is not responding the way most of us think we would respond in that case. You know, he's not visibly trying to get away. He's not visibly trying to resist them. Uh, He's spending a lot of time talking to the moon, to people, I think of of any race, watching today, that doesn't fit in with our like very American movie led understandings of like how one should deal with being captured by, as far as he's concerned, bad guys. So there's something going on in his head, and we just we don't know what it is. I agree that this would be a very different movie if we had more of a sense of him as a human rather than a mystery. I don't know. It's uh. I, I think the entire time I was talking about that, I was just, I was sort of talking about like, this is something that the, a desire that the movie creates in me. Not necessarily this is a uh, change that the movie would be better for. I, I think it's actually pretty clever, the degree to which it creates that desire, but it does, it makes me question fundamentally whether it would be better, quote unquote, with or without it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it just kind of is all sort of folded in with an approach to storytelling that is kind of comprehensive in the film about leaving uh, a lot of things open um, for interpretation, about having us guess at the motives of the main characters, uh, having us guess at the outcomes uh, that their decisions um, make, and, you know, having us think about the relationships that they have w- with each other. So to me, you know and, the, and there are so many barriers between these characters it's not just the, this barrier between the indian and and the settlers but between you know among the settlers as well among the the, the settlers and meek um among the women and the men i mean it all it, it, you know i feel like as a narrative strategy you know it preserves a certain amount of mystery
3: i mean i think to some degree any story any any movie that leaves the the reader the viewer the the participant whatever you want to call it time for thought is on some level uh asking the question like what would i do in this circumstance you know certain action movies do not move slowly enough to give you time for that thought but here like the the languors of this movie are so devoted to what's coming next how would i handle this if would i handle this any better like i, I do think it's a very natural uh, observation, but again, it requires a certain level of empathy that we're demonstrably seeing every day. A lot of people in the world don't have.
0: Okay. Well, on that, you know, appropriately pessimistic note for, for our Lord <laughs> of the Flies episode, <laughs> uh, we'll wind things down. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773 234 9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.com. Net. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at boys doing politics in the real world via Boys State. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at Facebook.com slash NextPictureShow, and follow us on Twitter at, at NextPicturePod. so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we're stealing your spectacles and building fires on our side of the island, because it's everyone for themselves out there. through the
2: darkness of the night. Here